movies like that live on reviews and audience reactions. So La La Land had a Rotten Tomatoes of 93, which is very positive. It means most reviewers loved it. 93 out of 100 loved it. If a movie like that, that's small and risky, hadn't been excellent, it wouldn't work. Hello and welcome to A New Angle. I'm your host, Justin Angle, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around Missoula, Montana. We're interested in creativity and hustle, and the people we'll speak with here exude both of those in spades. Buckle up and let's go. Hello and welcome back to A New Angle. Thanks for tuning in today. If you are a new customer, first time caller, whatever you want to say, new to the podcast, we're excited to have you. Welcome. If you are a repeat offender, we are thankful for your loyalty. And however you found the show, um, we'd love other people to find it. And if you can help us do that, we'd greatly appreciate it. So please write a review, rate, share, tell your friends, uh, tell your mom, whatever it is. Let other people know because we're trying to grow the audience. And the bigger audience we have, the more we can do with the show. Along those lines, if you have any thoughts about how we can do things better here, please don't hesitate to email me. My email address is a new angle at umontana.edu. So turning to today's episode, today's episode is an interview with Jeremy Sauter. Jeremy Sauter is kind of an underground crusher here in Missoula. He is, well, I would say he was a 1980 graduate of our program, but he will correct that record. I'll let the uh, I'll leave that sort of hanging there for you. Jeremy's just a huge supporter of what we do here at the university. He sits on our board of trustees for the University of Montana Foundation, which means he is one of the highest level advisors we have, one of the people closest to the university and helps shape all the things we do here. A tremendous resource. Jeremy, in his day job, is an executive of marketing uh, for Paramount Pictures. So he is in the business of making movies and deciding what it takes to to – to say yes to a movie project. As such, Jeremy is just a master storyteller. And um, and today we get into the weeds of how a movie actually gets made, what that process looks like, how the idea gets vetted, how they know they have a good idea when they're in it, and all things in between. I made this recording actually for my class, but uh, after listening to it, I thought it was so good that uh, I wanted all of you to hear it because the content is just super compelling. All of us find movies interesting, and particularly right now uh, in March with Oscar season, I thought this content would be um, would be really interesting to everybody. So anyway, I'll turn it over to Jeremy Sauter. I'm here today with Jeremy Sauter. Jeremy, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me today. It's fun. Yeah. So, Jeremy, you're just one of the... Well, first of all, I just got to say that I think it was a couple years ago, I was looking for some help in a particular class, and Paul Gladen recommended you. We had never met, and you just were all in. You didn't know a thing about me, about the class, and you were like, whatever you need, I want to help. And... Just found that tremendously inspiring uh, as a first impression, but then just to sort of start to work together on a few things, it's been super fun. So I really appreciate the support for the stuff I'm doing, the stuff the school's doing, and the university as well. Well, I've appreciated all these offers, which I look at as sort of 
healthy challenges to get out of my comfort zone and come speak to students about things that I have to, you know, brush up on or find a new context for. And, you know, your classes are pretty interesting. And so uh, I've had fun fitting myself into those classes. That's been great. Yeah, so just a little bit about you, Jeremy. You graduated from UM in 85, is that right? Graduated is not the exact term, oh, but yeah, that is when I did leave. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I was here, uh, I came out to Montana to study uh, to be a forest ranger and didn't do that well in either organic chemistry or calculus and ended up going into the journalism school, which sort of fit my writing and speaking skills a little bit better. I, and I had a ball there, ended up with a, a job uh, before I graduated and went off to L.A. for a long time and worked in marketing at various agencies and uh, ended up at Paramount Pictures, where I still work today. Yeah, and you were you did a stint at Paramount and then did some other things back in Montana and then back to Paramount? Is that kind yeah, of Yeah, so I left Paramount full-time as an executive, and um, I think, you know, the cliche is true. I sort of just stood in my boss's office and just threw it all on the floor and said, I can't take this crap anymore. I'm going to go try something new. Uh, you know, I'm going to Montana. Sure. And instead of getting my freedom, I just got the chance to work and uh, from home instead. Okay. And so okay. for the last 10 years, which I thought would last about six months, I've been sort of commuting back and forth, mostly hanging out up here in the great town of Missoula yeah. and spending enough time in the office to stay connected to the important people and projects. Sure. Uh, it's, and it's been liberating. It's been it's given me a little bit more bandwidth to try other things, you know, helping with startups or, mm -hmm. as you say, working with the university and mentoring students, um, stuff that really is a lot harder to fit in when you're doing the full-time job grind in L.A. Yeah, so you've been involved in a number of Missoula startups and regional startups, and then you're also on our board of trustees at the university. Is correct. still correct? Okay. Yeah, we just had an amazing couple-day meeting. People come in from all over the country, and right now, you know, if you read about the University of Montana, a lot of the headlines are about the challenges, but there's also great opportunity now, and we've, we've never had donors that were more generous than they've been in the last year. Um, trying to, you know, establish some new programs and set things up, you know, for the next 125 years, this institution. Yeah, I think those are those are hopefully, you know, we start telling those stories a little bit more correct uh, loudly and clearly. You know, we're really thriving on the foundation level, and right? We're thriving with the research enterprise and so much attention is paid to this enrollment number, right? I think it distracts from all the great things that are happening here. Agreed, 100%. I mean, I think if you ask a lot of students or professors here that are doing amazing work, uh, they just put their nose to the grindstone and keep inventing new things and studying amazing things and kind of tune out the noise that seems to kind of pervade our coverage right now. Sure. And, you know, one of the, I don't know if it's outcome or benefit, it's certainly not by design, but you go through these lean years and it forces people to innovate. Right. And get creative with, with trying new things. And so hopefully some of those lessons we learned will guide us into the future. Hopefully, yeah. That's the plan. Anyway, so, you know, we could talk about UM all day, but uh, <laughs> the hope for today was to kind of talk about product as it exists in your world. I thought your experience in the in the film industry really maps on well because you sort of sit in this unique unique spot where you see a bunch of ideas coming in and then those ideas have to well a certain number of them go to market. Right. And uh, I just wanted to talk about what that process looks like, uh, who the gatekeepers are, and how value is created for uh, a studio. Well, it's ideally if you looked at you know Hollywood as an example of a, a global creator of content or product in the entertainment space, it, you'd see a, 
perhaps more people pouring over research and spreadsheets and and um, you know quantitative data that would help inform great decisions about what products are made. But ultimately, when you think about a movie, it's really a dominantly an artistic endeavor. As as mercenary as it often appears, it's a lot of artists um, writing dialogue and creating pictures and creating music and some of the um you know the the business side is the goal but the product development is on the artistic side mm. and then after perhaps there's a script or sometimes even after there's a movie made independently people start to assess the business value of that product so it's an interesting space in that it's not always driven just by thoughtful market analysis. It's sometimes driven by someone waking up at three in the morning and say, I want to make a movie about X. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, that movie's made. And people like me who are marketers have to figure out who that movie's really for and who's going to go see it and what weekend it should come out where the competition is least oppressive to that audience. Okay, so you're describing a world in which the, the product sort of exists or, or nearly exists. And then you guys figure out, okay, well, what is a segment that, or segment of the market, a segment of customers that would find this product appealing? And then how do we convince them that they right. should find it appealing? And certainly there are, you know, there's a lot of movies that, that get made, especially in 2017, that have a, an audience in mind, but you know how you how you speak to that audience. When's the best time to get them? You know what's the value proposition you put forward? That's kind of figured out on the fly as you go to market. Okay. More than it is when you come up with a new car and, and the design and the value proposition and the and the finances of the whole um, endeavor are kind of part and parcel of the same PowerPoint presentation. Sure. It's a little bit divorced sometimes. The marketing from the creation of the content. Yeah, so I'm thinking in broad brushes here, you know, you know, if you got an animated feature, you're probably, you know, first looking at kids. Right. Or if you've got a romantic comedy, you're looking at a certain demographic type of right. type of customer base. But I wonder if you have any examples of this notion where the the, the the product has come first and then the segmentation or the targeting is kind of uh, like you said, done on the fly. I just bring this up because, you know, we're we're it's it's easy in the classroom to be misled into the notion that these sorts of things are linear, right? Where they are indeed not, and I think the world you're describing is is certainly not linear. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as you say, if you make Finding Dory, or you make The Secret Life of Pets, or you make Sing, you you have a pretty good idea that it's going to be mostly um, children of an age that need their moms to take them. To a theater, that's going to be your primary, and you're going to have secondary, third audiences. But um, example of something where the the audience kind of revealed itself later in the process. Last year, a movie came out called Warcraft, based on um, a comic book intellectual property, uh, um, video game intellectual property. Okay. So a lot of people play Warcraft. Millions of people get online and play this uh, role-playing game, this sort of fantasy-based. So that movie came out in the United States, and um, it made $24 million its opening weekend, but that wasn't even close to covering the cost of making it and marketing it. And the okay. secret that happened was they figured out that those characters, those sort of very uh, bombastic, larger-than-life, cr crazy, draw drawn 
uh, characters appealed to the Chinese audience. Mm. And that movie made all its money in China. It made um, 386 million foreign versus 47 million domestic. That kind of balance, I don't think anyone could have thought that. Sure. When they greenlit that movie, they probably thought, oh, we're going to make the usuals kind of 50-50 split or something closer to that. But without that ch- that sort of Chinese appeal, um, that movie would have lost a lot of money. So what do you think about that? Do you think that that's like a, a breakdown of your planning system or more like a, a sign that it's robust and adaptive and can learn on the fly? I'm trying to figure out like yeah. how you judge if that's a success or an accident. I think I think if you're the filmmaker and you get a profit participation success, you call it a, uh, a check, then you call it a success. <laughs> sure, yeah. It's always, yeah, so you just take credit and you say, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Absolutely. That was my plan all along. But I think you your question does reveal a um, a process where there's very few sure things. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the box office from last year, the sure things were seven out of ten movies last year in the top ten were either <clears throat> remakes, sequels, or extensions of a known intellectual property yeah. universe. So if you're talking about a Star Wars movie, Finding Dory, Captain America, Jungle Book, Deadpool, Batman vs. Superman, Su- Suicide Squad, those are movies where you can go into it at a price and say, we're already over the first hurdle. We, we have awareness. We probably even have some interest. Um, and then all we really have to do is convince people of that third step, which is the transaction. Once you're into ideas um, that are outside that universe of known intellectual property. Those where people are taking a leap. And it's, you know, just looking back at, uh, it's not a new thing or old thing. Like, look at the hundred and something years of Hollywood. Like, the the movies people take a bet on, it's not a great investment. It's yeah. It's kind of a crazy abstract system where a lot of people who are smart and well compensated together in a room don't always have that great a chance of guessing what's going to work and what's not going to work. And there's different forces <clears throat> that come to play. So we talk about, you know, there's there's macro trends that are hard to see coming too. So uh, competition. You know, if you if you were greenlighting a movie, oh, you know, a certain number of years ago, and, it, and Netflix came out, all of a sudden you have a new competitor for somebody's Friday night. Yep. They can stream a great old movie for free. Mm-hmm. So getting them off the couch is that much harder. If you have a a new Call of Duty video game coming out. Those movies make hundreds of millions in their first couple months in the marketplace. So their competition, a sporting event, whatever it is, like the world has really changed um, in a macro way that makes it even more complicated to guess which movies are going to work and aren't going to work. And that's as, as you're saying that it, it's interesting because you describe a world in which, yeah, there's some like and, and I've heard you talk about this before. There's I don't know like three story arcs yeah. that are you know, all movies sort of descend into, or these known enterprises like the Star Wars franchise or a superhero film. or you know, So these are, are known to some degree, and so it's unclear like to deviate from that, that sort of known enterprise right. is, is, a, is a chance you have to take. But at the same time, now this competitive landscape has changed and you're competing against Netflix and home streaming and video games and your mobile device, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm, conf- I'm not confused, but I see this world where there's an incentive on the one hand to stay with what works. But 
the competitive landscape is changing, and is it is it safe to stay with it with what works? Right. Like, do you have right. to do you have to take more of those gambles? Well, I think that the interesting thing is with movie studios is they don't survive over the course of a year by just one film. Mm. So every studio has to come up with a slate. Okay. And those, depending on the studio and kind of their 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 specific strategy, that may be just a couple of movies that really swing for the fences. So if you're Disney, you say, we're going to buy Marvel, we're going to buy Lucasfilm, which does Star Wars, and we're going to buy Pixar. Okay. And we're going to make only the biggest of the big movies. And we're not going to waste our time on a lot of other stuff. Other studios don't own that intellectual property, so they have to create a slate that may have, you know, like Paramount has Transformers, we have G.I. Joe, we have SpongeBob, we have some known entities, but we don't have enough of those to keep the lights on. We have to come up with some other movies every sure. year that may not be. So to your to your point, yeah, you, we the industry probably is going to make a lot of money off these known quantities, but they're also going to need to be doing new things to freshen it up and also to build the franchises of the future. So also last year, some of the more successful movies, um, La La Land, yeah. If you said, let's make a, a musical about actors uh, and, and America's going to go see that, or even Moonlight, um, th- those are risky movies. They're tough to sell. They, sure. you know, they, first of all, they're speaking to a smaller audience than you know, a Star Wars movie is, and you have to get you know, basically all those um, thoughtful people on the coast to like it and love it and let it have a slow build. You also have to have an amazing product, right? Because... Movies like that live on reviews and audience reactions. So La La Land had a Rotten Tomatoes of 93, which is very positive. It means most reviewers loved it. 93 out of 100 loved it. If a movie like that, that's small and risky, hadn't been excellent, it wouldn't work, right? Because it would have come out on that platform release in New York and L.A. and people would have said, "Ah, I'm underwhelmed. It wouldn't have gone to the next thousand theaters. So tougher strategy, but people are doing that. <clears throat> Another example, um, if you had talked about horror movies, you know, 20 years ago, they, they, they were really all just retreads. It was, you know, when they got to, you know, Freddy versus Jason, sure, and, yeah. you know, Jason goes to Manhattan or New York, you know, seven. Or whatever yeah, like those things were dead. And now we're in a kind of a new um, renaissance of great horror movies. And people are really going because um, if you think of your experience of Netflix on your couch versus seeing Don't Breathe in a movie theater... Mm-hmm. Don't Breathe is a terrifying movie, and audiences loved it, and they literally scream every five minutes. That's something you want to go see with a crowd. Yeah. That's experiential. Yeah. So kind of the differentiator for movies is, yeah, some of them are intellectual, some of them are IP, but really when you think of a great movie experience, it's either seeing Don't Breathe where people are screaming or it's seeing something like Sausage Party, which is also another rule-breaking movie that did pretty well. So an R-rated animated movie about talking groceries. Like, right. I don't know who took that risk. I don't know the development people, but good for them. You know, that it opened to 34 million. It made almost 100. That's And it was made pretty cheaply. So there are people breaking the rules, trying new things. It helps to have known actors. It helps to have a big studio that can market it. But even though we're, we sort of talk about macro trends, and these seven out of ten movies that may be known intellectual property. If you look at Sausage Party, La La Land, Moonlight, some great movies from last year, those are crazy bets. Sure. And, and some of them work, and so they're worth doing. So along those lines, like what are as you're describing this, I'm thinking, okay, what 
what are the drivers of success? You've got story, right? You've got the acting itself, but also the actors and how attractive they are. Yeah, I'm sure there are certain actors that drive just a certain amount of box office sales just by their name, and then there's the director, and then probably the financing infrastructure of, of the film itself. Like, right. how, how does all this come together? That's the art part of it. Okay. That's why it's such a hard business because yeah. you. Think of, like, I'm not, I couldn't cook my way to, like, one meal. I would die. Like, I don't know how to cook. <laughs> but if you think of a great recipe and how many ways there are to make it special or make it terrible, mm-hmm. like, that's kind of movies. You you went over some of them. You have the, the actors, the pedigree of the filmmakers, the quality of the script, the execution of the visuals. You know, it's like, there's a lot going on in there. The You know, the chemistry over time in a movie. It can go wrong in a lot of different ways. Uh, and it and it certainly does happen. So, in answer to your question about all the different elements and how they fit together, you know, there's there's probably ga- uh, great ways to look at it, like a a symphony or a recipe. And I'll take the recipe analogy. Sure. If you think of the ingredients that go into a movie, whether it's the actors or the pedigree of the filmmakers, the quality of the script, um, the movie, the execution, the visuals, there's there's a lot of a lot of moving parts. And it's very hard. You know, great directors are great directors for a reason. They hold together all these different departments, all these different ideas, these emotions, these movements, time, the way that works in films. Super complex system. So, you know, some movies have great intentions. They have great scripts. Everyone believes in them. And they just, you just don't feel it in the end. And some movies are a little bit like a a little bit of lightning in, in a bottle, like, no one else gets it, and some one guy had it all in his head, or one gal, and um, all those little elements come together. So, but which one is the one that makes the movie work? It's hard to know. I, to me, it's usually a lot of things in concert. I don't think you can get people to see a movie unless there's a concept that sounds entertaining. Yeah. Like if you can't put it into five or six words, or a value proposition that. It may be more emotional and less plot-based. Mm-hmm. Um, some movies have been sold on the basis of, like, one amazing scene. And you kind of, like, that can get merchandise in a way, you know? Like, oh, okay. So, you know, there there have been movies that have done well where it's, like, you know, sort of keep the secret promise. It, it can happen a lot of different ways. I think that some of the thinking in the last couple of years has been if you can get a cast of eight people and each one of those eight people has 20 million Facebook followers... Then somehow your movie's gonna work, and maybe that that worked the first couple times, but I, I I think that's overly simplistic, and it ignores the the emotion and the the sort of fantastical experiential quality of a movie that sweeps you away. I don't think movies work unless you go in there and you're transported somewhere. It's really that. That's why people go. Yeah. If that doesn't happen, they tell their friends not to go. Mm-hmm. So there's the anybody who's trying to build an algorithm to predict Correct. a successful movie doesn't have all the variables in it yet, or maybe that algorithm isn't buildable. Is what I'm I don't think it's buildable because even even someone that studies movies makes a great living off movies. I think they're wrong about as often as they're right. And I think, okay. and hopefully they're surprised a lot. I try to like, I'm a Blade Runner fan from the old days. Yeah. I love the old Blade Runner. So every time new commercials came on for the new one i literally covered my ears and just went i i i I don't want to hear i don't want to know i want to just go in and be swept away sure so to me that's the magic you can't put in an algorithm it's interesting like what drives that mindset in the viewer like if you're in the mindset with 
that Blade Runner, where you're you're willing to take the effort to ignore all that right. new information to go in and get taken away. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I went, I think it was in high school when JFK came out. I wasn't really that familiar with Oliver Stone's work. I think I'd seen Platoon and thought it was really good or something. But I went into JFK and I had this mindset of, I'm just going to assume for these, whatever, two, three hours yeah. that everything in this movie is true. Right. And then think about the way, what that means for the world we live in. And it was totally transformational in the sense that it just blew my mind. But like, what is it about, like that sort of mindset was created before he even went to the movie. I don't know if it just was latent in me. Well, let's or... talk about value proposition. Yeah. So usually when we contextualize a movie, it's, it's the plot or the concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and most movies succeed or fail. Yeah, they, you need to know the concept before you buy your ticket. But usually the reason you go is about 10 levels deeper than that. So okay. um, the Star Wars movies came out in a reimagined fashion yep. a couple years ago. There had been an original three that everybody loved. Then there was three that everybody hated. Mm-hmm. Everybody. And then <laughs> they started again. So when they came back to start again just a few years ago, it wasn't just that you wanted to go see the story or go see the Death Star. There was this incredible itch. You'd been watching those movies yeah, since yeah. the 70s. Right. And and they were a part of the fabric of either your lives or your parents' lives. Mm-hmm. And then somebody did really bad thing to that. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, it kind of soured it. And so the idea that you could have this nostalgic rebirth of something you love that had been mistreated mm-hmm. by the world and, and in an offensive quality way, like that is the reason a lot of people went to Star Wars. They didn't need to know... Who, what characters were in it, or that the music was there, or that there was going to be like, you know, laser swords. Like they knew that. Just tell me it's going to be okay. I want. I've been feeling really bad for right, right, right. twenty years since they started making the bad versions. So that's a value proposition. Finding Dory. Um. Yeah, it's funny. It's warm. It 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 has a bunch of jokes. It has a bunch of fish characters, but kind of. It came out last year, which was really a tough year for a lot of people in America. Like, there was a lot of animosity. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much innocence left. So, having everyone needs a Dory in their life. The idea that you could just go connect with something simple and special and warm and sweet and innocent, like, that is a value proposition. So, to me, if you look at some of the bigger movies, they're they're not... They're not just the sum of their parts in the sense of a story or a sort of technical execution of a film. There's something deeper. That, to your point, that will, yeah. I, I don't think will ever show up in the algorithm. Sure. And that value proposition that's beneath, if you can find that and articulate that somehow to your audience, to me, that's the most powerful way to get them to see the movie. And when do you know in the production process that is? You know, from your experience, like right. when does it sort of come to life? So you have a hunch as you read a script. Um, you say, oh, this, it could be, you know, maybe we'll sell it this way or we'll sell it that way. Or maybe you read a couple pages of dialogue and you're like, oh, wow, if we show the audience, that, you know, this scene, they're going to never forget it. They're going to want to go see the rest of it. Sure. But then I think once you go to that first screening, if you go to a test screening, if the if the filmmakers are in that process where they're 
they're going to go show people, whether it's friends and family or whether it's recruited strangers in some other city. That's pretty deep into the process, yeah, right? That, I feel like that's when you kind of really know what the movie means to people. Okay. Now, we may have been making trailers and posters and things like that before we get to that screening, yeah. but I really trust the <clears throat> wisdom of the audience to divine that magic special sauce more than I would trust myself because I'm one of many and movies need millions of people to succeed. So we do a lot of research, huge part of movie marketing. We, you know, the move, sometimes the concepts are tested. Sometimes, you know, if you look at Disney, they go around, they come up with an animated film. They go around the world and show the faces of those characters to kids in like a hundred countries. You know, they, they they don't walk into it and say like, I hope people find this character beautiful or attractive. They know. So there's, there can be research all the way from that first, you know, inkling of DNA all the way through, you know, the release of a film. We get research, you know, days before a film opens and try to do the right media mix and the right commercials and the right messaging. There's a whole way you're getting all this input. I wouldn't trade any of that for just watching people either consume the movie or when we do focus groups of trailers and TV spots, just watching people watch those spots. Okay. So if you're if you're sort of in the binary world of traditional quantitative research and you show a commercial and you say, Are you interested or not interested? That's that's a that's a kind of a rear view mirror thing. I like that spot worked or didn't work at a certain level. I love the idea of sitting in a room, especially with a comedy or a drama. The TV's in one corner, the audience is watching that commercial, and I'm watching their eyes. Okay. And if they lean forward, if they laugh, if they at the end they kind of look at each other and nod their heads, I feel like then we're making sense to them on some deeper level. Sure. I don't even want them to tell me whether they liked or not. I want to see it. And those are the sorts of things that are, you know, they're hard to to specify metrics. Yes. Right. Like so much of marketing these days is. And business in general is metric driven. Like we, we, can, we can theoretically measure everything, so we should measure everything. Yeah. But what you're describing is sort of where that art uh, seems to come into play. Well, there's not, you know, I mean, we have a huge research team, and they're super smart, and they have all kinds of formulas and spreadsheets, and they, I think, they improve every year in finding ways to um, sort of track the success of a campaign as we go along. Mm-hmm. So it used to be like kind of like political marketing, you know, they would call people and do polls and you would find out who's going to vote for who. And it was very binary. Then, um, we, then there was technologies that would come along and, and, um, you know, find out sentiment by watching people's eyes or by checking Twitter traffic or, you know, there's companies now, if you run a commercial, um, at eight 53 at night on a certain network, they look at Google searches at 8:53, and they see like, did that commercial prompt traffic? Yep. You know, and 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 everyone's trying to correlate their specific technology to being an indicator of success of a campaign and box office. I don't know. I, I feel like the longer I've been in this business, um, the the more I realize that every new technology that comes along, yeah, it's it's new. But I I don't even know if that's my job. I feel like my job is just to keep coming up with cleaner, fresher ways to try to articulate the value proposition of a movie. And I've started to try to 
at least personally, the way I fit into my organization, not get too distracted by every spreadsheet that shows up in my inbox telling me whether it's working or not. Sure. It would seem that it sort of takes us back to this notion of data-driven decision-making versus data-informed. Right. I mean, you've got the experience to sort of, you know, have your subjective judgment of things, but an open but a sophisticated enough mind to see the value in some of these sources of data and right. maybe how some of them could be distractions. I'll tell you one metric that does seem to be a pretty clear correlator with success, and that's Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, um, yeah. On the weekend of not necessarily the uh, critic score, but the audience score. So there have been a number of movies this year, and I won't get into which one's which because some of them are excruciating to remember because they were ours. Um, you know, if you get to a Friday night and the Rotten Tomatoes from the audience is very low, then your playability on the Saturday and the Sunday go down tremendously. Really? So you can have one group of indicators, um, some a kind of pre-open polling interest measurement that says we're going up, up, up. People are really, we can't wait. You know, it's going to be a big weekend. Yep. And then there can be another indicator, completely separate measurement of um, Rotten Tomatoes that comes in low on that Thursday, Friday. And all the data that came before is sort of moot. Interesting. People's interest can just go away. Yeah. So, you know, there have been a couple movies this year where if you lay the, you know, kind of the the colored bars together of growth and then diminishment, you can really see track events that have changed that profile. And, you know, the to me, the most powerful event right now that's changing our business as far as data is, you know, what, what do we do about people looking at Rotten Tomatoes when uh, the audience may not love the movie or the critics may not love the movie? Yeah. And the challenge isn't just that you know, the simplistic version that's in the press right now is Hollywood makes bad movies and they're blaming the reviewers or the audience. But I think that I think that oversimplifies it because we talked about all the different kinds of movies, a slate of movies a studio makes, and they don't make every movie for every person. Mm -hmm. So I may love um I may love Sausage Party. I may love a Jackie Chan movie. I may love a sports movie, and I may not love Star Wars. So how does Rotten Tomatoes make that distinction when someone has made a smaller movie that I may love, but it gets a zero because they're kind of saying, how's it doing against everyone in America? So, yeah, and then there's probably maybe some timing issues there, too. A movie could come out at the wrong time yeah. versus the, the slate of competition. And That's that right. And that could affect its Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I mean, scores. 100%. So, yeah, I mean, I guess back to the meta question, we have a lot of data right now. Yeah. How we handle it, how consumers use it to make decisions about what they may like. Sure. I don't think we've really figured that no. out. I think we've got some really simple, blunt um, hammers hitting nails and we're not doing a lot of intricate carving of different tastes, different audience. You know who does it is Netflix. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. you look at a Netflix and not only they don't rely on you saying I like this movie or I didn't like it because people are kind of notoriously bad at doing that. They yep. they say they like things that they think people should you know want them to like and all and, sorts of biases. Yeah, all sorts of biases. Directly. But if you get into a movie uh 
that you're supposed to like and 20 minutes later you turn it off and get up and go do something else, Netflix has a pretty good idea that's not your taste. Yeah. And if you do that three times in a row, they're not going to recommend movies like that to you again. Mm -hmm. So that level of data has not really transferred completely to um, the movie going experience in theaters. Like there's a lot of people with walled gardens that know a lot about their online audiences, but I don't think the studios know anything like that kind of granular level about who sees their movies, who likes it, why, and how do we help people find movies they love. They yeah, should love. And, and that the, it's interesting. Like, and then the Netflix user experience is different. Like, they have this, as you said, a wall data collection sort of ecosystem, but their content delivery, like. If you were to ask people what they want, they'd probably say, oh, yeah, I'd love to watch a movie like The English Patient. Right. right. But when it comes down to it, like you got your kids to bed, it's 9 o'clock at night, you got a few minutes to unwind, you just want to watch a rerun of Seinfeld or yeah. whatever. Whereas a film, I think, is a different challenge because just the effort associated with right. going, like you want that kind of, maybe you want that unique experience. Although with Star Wars, as a counterpoint, you brought it up, like people sort of wanted to go home again there. Right. So... It, I think it's much more complex because of the the setting, the theater setting. Yeah, and you know, I that. think back to something we talked about at the beginning of this discussion is every every movie ticket purchase is not competing just with movies. It's not competing in, in theaters or with movies on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. It's competing with um, a concert, yeah. with yeah. um time on Facebook with going to see the Grizz on the set, you know, like we just had a game, a homecoming game, or maybe it was the one before it, but it was an evening game. Right. Yeah. So if you think of those 25,000 people sitting in the stadium, those are 25,000 people in Western Montana who are not available to go to the movies. Absolutely. So they've made a decision on their, the predominant, you know, slice of that day. They're not mm -hmm. going to the movies. Something else won for their attention. So it's always a battle. Interesting. Jeremy, this has been a great pleasure. I just, what, I learn more and more about just this process every time we talk. It's it's an industry that just fascinates me because of its complexity, this mixture of art and science. Right. And I think, uh, although it might not map directly onto a lot of the course concepts, I feel like it's probably a, a really valuable exercise for students to kind of get into. This well, I think every time a student goes to see a movie or goes to see a concert downtown or you know, watches a, a three minutes in, on YouTube of, you know, cars crashing or people falling yeah. down, that is, they should, they should take a step back if they're a marketer or in product development and try to understand that decision. Because once you get good at understanding those decisions at a very base level, then you're becoming a valuable marketer for whatever you go sell or create in your life. Seems like that's our most valuable commodity these days is our attention. Yeah. Anyway, always a pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. Much. Very fun. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're our first sponsor, and we can't thank them enough. CED is one of the largest electrical wholesale supply companies in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide. CED is a privately owned business-to-business -business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. 
CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. Coming up next week, we have Mike Foote. Mike is a professional athlete in two sports that not many people know about, ultra running and ski mountaineering. As a fringe sport professional athlete, and I use that term professional loosely, Mike really has to hustle to make a living doing what he loves, and we're going to talk about all of that. We're going to also use his appearance on the podcast to make a big announcement about a big project he has coming up in the very near future. Moving forward, if you have any suggestions for guests, cool people doing awesome things, please let us know. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the show. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, please just tell your friends about it. In addition, you can also support A New Angle financially. For information on sponsorship opportunities, please visit our website, www.business.umt.edu slash a new angle. There you will also find a link to support the pod. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this project happen. First, my colleagues at the College of Business for supporting this endeavor. In particular, Professor Josh Herbold for writing and recording original music for the show. We also have music provided by Switchback Records, a student-run record label here at the college. I'd also like to thank Elizabeth Willey, recent UM graduate Michelle DeFluke, and the entire comms team here at the College of Business. And finally, thanks to my producer, Stefan Borsum. As we close, if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.